If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the last book in the canon and chapter 21. Isn't it so, isn't there so much security in knowing as we think about the promise of heaven that it is secured for us, not based on our own works, but on Jesus Christ, on his faithfulness to the Lord, on on the faithfulness to God, on the purity of his life and his sacrificial death. Heaven is ours because of him and because of what he has done. Last Sunday, we embarked on a two-week study of the two biblical realities that should impact every single one of our lives. Two realities that are spoken of frequently in the scripture, unfortunately are not spoken frequently in our day. Two certainties that impact how we live in our present life, even though the two realities are concerning the life to come. Those two realities are the reality of hell and the reality of heaven. Each one of us as created beings will experience one of these two eternal destinations. When our time on this earth is done, we will find ourselves in either hell or in heaven. From the ink spilled through the scriptures, we can clearly see that God wants us to understand these two realities, both to ensure that we turn to Christ in faith and seek salvation through his life and death and resurrection, but also to motivate us in our lives of righteousness and motivate our life of mission. Both of these two realities they, they motivate us to live our life here and now. Last week, when studying the judgment of the lost, we saw what God revealed about hell and the destination of the unsaved, and we also saw the response that we were to have to that revelation. And this week, we'd like to do the same with the topic of heaven. I came to church today not really thinking about my outfit, but apparently it is Bronco colors. And so a couple people said, well, that's appropriate. And I thought, well, it's just the opposite. The last seven years have been the opposite of heaven as a Bronco fan. Sorry about that. This morning, we want to dig into the glorious truth of that promise that we have been given of heaven. Last week, we looked together at the reality of hell, that for those that have not turned to Christ in faith, for the forgiveness of their sins and perfect righteousness, God's eternal wrath is upon them. And their death, and at their death, when Christ comes again, they will be cast into a literal place. And that literal place is called the lake of fire, a place of punishment, a place of outer darkness a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from God, a place of torment where the worm does not die nor where the fire is quenched. And as we studied these graphic images together of this eternal punishment, we noted that they spoke of mental and sensuous torment, unfulfilled desires, loneliness, hopelessness, restlessness, and the conscious recognition of the terrible experience of facing the perfect wrath 
of God. But we also notice that as horrific as hell is depicted in the scripture, it is continual and without end. We also saw last week that all of us are damned to this eternity because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, this judgment. But praise be to God for the goodness of the gospel, as it says in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come we, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to this earth to be the lamb of God to take away the sin of you and me. Through his perfect life, His work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, he has provided a way of escape. And that leads us to our study this morning. One reality that is there absolutely in the pages of Scripture is hell, but the Bible also speaks of a very different certainty. Not only does he save us from what is absolutely the worst thing we could possibly imagine, but he has saved us for what is absolutely the greatest thing that we could possibly imagine, and that is the reality of heaven. If you would, take a look at Revelation chapter 21. I'd like to read this vision of John's. Chapter 21, verses 1 through chapter 22 Verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and the abominable, And the murderers and the sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high Mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem 
coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb." The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, wide, and height are all equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measure, which also is angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The 11th, Jessalem, the 12th, Amethyst, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street in the city was pure gold-like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, and Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord has illuminated, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring in their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were from the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light as a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing vision that you gave John, that he has recorded for us. Lord, we could spend hours and days and weeks and months talking about what you have saved us from, and we and you would receive all of the glory and it would be rightfully yours. But not only did you save us from the lake of fire, 
But what you saved us to is amazing. It is glorious and magnificent and wonderful, and it is something that we long to experience. Lord, from this passage, we see that sinners don't belong there. And yet, and yet, you have granted us forgiveness. You have placed the righteousness of Christ upon us. And we look forward to this amazing place. Father, we pray that as we look at the scriptures this morning, that you would reveal this place to us. It would be a place of meditation for us as we think about it. It would be a place of discussion as we talk about it. It would motivate us in our actions. And Lord, that you would be glorified through it all. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As one reads both the Old Testament and the New Testament, sorry, it is clear that for the believer, when our time on this earth is over, one of the promises of salvation is that we will be with the Lord in heaven forever and ever. While the Bible doesn't give us a complete picture of what it will be like in heaven, it gives us these amazing little pictures, these pieces of the puzzle for us to begin to put together and to be amazed by and in wonder over. And it begins to reveal something that is absolutely remarkable. We won't fully know what it will look like until we are there, but we do know, much like what J.I. Packer wrote, heaven will be better than what we could possibly dream. The scriptures teach that immediately at our death, our souls are ushered into the presence of God who dwells in heaven. On Friday, we'll be focused on the death of Christ. And as we do that, we are reminded of the two criminals that hung on the cross next to Christ. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, Jesus, in his dialogue with the criminal, informs us of something about heaven. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Immediately are we ushered into the presence of Christ. Immediately are we entered into heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present and at home with the Lord. And it is in this presence that we will experience something greater than anything we have experienced here in life. Listen to how David, King David, describes it in Psalm 1611. And he says that at his right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Jesus described in Luke 16 a place of comfort. The Apostle John spoke of it as a place of rest in Revelation 6 and 14. And Paul, thank you, brother. You know, because of that, Micah, I'm going to take the $1 and $2 envelopes for Regen, and I'm going to take that for the fundraiser. Okay, good. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 
said, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. But why is there such rest? Why is there such joy? What is this pleasure that is being described? What is this fullness of joy? Why does the Bible hold heaven out for us as we struggle and battle through this life? What is so amazing about heaven? Well, I want to give you four reasons or or pieces of the puzzle that the Bible reveals about heaven. So that we will have a better understanding. Again, not a full picture, but a portion of the picture of the reality of heaven. And then we'll look at the response to that reality. The Bible reveals, number one, that there is beauty and majesty in heaven and it will be breathtaking. The beauty and majesty of heaven will be breathtaking. We just read Revelation 21 and 22. And the Apostle Paul has been given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And his description of this vision was of extreme beauty and splendor. The major feature of the new earth will be this new Jerusalem that has come down from heaven that John is trying to explain to you and to me. John calls it the holy city coming down from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It has been prepared and it is, he uses the description of a bride not only to talk about the fact that, that, that it's prepared for the church but here he's talking about the beauty of it. Just as the bride is adorned in beauty on her wedding day, the city will be dazzling in every way. The new Jerusalem is the capital of heaven where all the redeemed saints will live. This is what Jesus told his disciples about in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. This is what he was preparing. And in John's description of it here in our text, he speaks of costly stones and precious metals in his attempt to communicate the inexpressible glory of this place. Everywhere he looked, from the streets to the walls to the gates to the river, we have beauty and we have splendor. But not only was it attractive to the eye, but this new Jerusalem is massive. Paul records that the city is nearly 1,500 miles long, and it's as wide and as high as it is long, a perfect cube. To give you a rough idea of how large this new Jerusalem is, it would be the United States from the Rocky Mountains to the East Coast. Huge, beyond beyond what they could comprehend. His description includes the presence of angels and the testimony of God's faithfulness to Israel as it speaks of the the different families and sons of Israel and the faithfulness to the apostles as their names are recorded. One of the things that amazes me about the beauty and splendor of heaven is that in John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and he has been preparing that place for 2,000 years. How many of you have gone on a majestic hike, seen a sunset, and been overwhelmed by God's creative power? That was in six days. 2,000 years of preparing a place for us. 
Heaven will be beautiful and majestic. It will be beyond our comprehension. But, but another reason that it is very much better is that not only is it beautiful and majestic, but all sin will be removed. Brian prayed for that and, and prayed about that in the elder prayer. Look at verse 8 and verse 27 of Revelation 21. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murders and sexually immoral persons, the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now jump down to verse 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. These verses teach us that nothing impure will ever intrude the holiness of heaven. No sinful thoughts, no sinful words, no sinful deeds. This means we will never again have to deal with the impact and the influence and consequences of sin because they will will have been dealt with forever. There will be no fight against the unredeemed flesh. We all know that battle We all know that struggle. Listen to Paul in Revelation 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That battle, that fight, that struggle is gone in heaven. There will be no practicing the very evil that I don't want to do. There will only be practicing the very good that I want to do. There will be no encumbering sins. There will be no, why did I say that? Or why did I think that? Or why do I feel that about that person? All gone. Sin will be removed. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 and 6, verse 11, the redeemed in heaven are described as shining and wearing white robes, indicating their moral purity and righteousness. We will finally be just like Christ, without sin. From Genesis 3, we have all been fighting against not only Satan, and the world system, but our own redeemed flesh. But in heaven, when we are with Christ, we will be like him, holy. And it won't just be positionally. We're holy positionally now, praise God. But then we will be holy practically. How I long to shed this sinful flesh. The end of the day, With such desires of righteousness, I find myself on my knees confessing again. Pure worship, because no sin. I will live in perfect fellowship with Christ, because I will be like Christ. 
The third glory of heaven is that the curse of sin will be no longer. God created man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And there was a short time in our history, humanity's history, where I think we did it. But then Genesis 3 came, and sin entered the world, and with it, sin's curse. But because sin will be absent from heaven, so shall the curse of sin. As we read through Genesis 3, and we see that the difficulties that are ours because of sin's presence... When we think of heaven, those things will be gone. Look at Revelation 21 in verses 2 and 3. It reveals this most amazing reversal. In verses 3 and 4, we see five specific things that are mentioned that we won't be burdened with in heaven that we are here in this life. There's no curse, verse 3. There's no death in verse 4, no mourning, and no weeping, no more pain. The curse of sin that we see in Genesis 3 will be removed. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15 or write that down in your notes, Paul is talking about the, the resurrection and the resurrected body. And in verse 35 and following, he states that our heavenly bodies will be different for our natural bodies with some stark contrasts. Where our earthly bodies are susceptible to death, our resurrected bodies will be characterized by immortality. Where our earthly bodies are susceptible to decay or corruption, our new bodies will be indestructible. As our natural bodies are prone to weakness, and you can ask anyone over the age of 40 if they think they're prone to weakness, our resurrected bodies will be characterized by strength. 1 Corinthians 15.43 describes the transformation from sown in dishonor to raised in glory. Philippians 3.21 says that Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Our decaying bodies are described with the word dishonor because they bear the mark of the results of our sin. But God, through Christ's transforming power, is able to raise up his children with new, glorious bodies, completely free from the ravages of sin and possessing the glory of Christ instead. In heaven, it says that we will be eating perfectly. Sorry. Real quick, time out. There is a lot about eating in heaven as you do some study. So just to encourage you, uh, there's a lot of eating in heaven. All right, back to what we're talking about. We will be eating, Luke 14, 15. We will be worshiping, Revelation 4, 9 through 11. We will be fellowshipping with fellow saints, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse... Uh, Verses 13 through 18. We will serve him and work for him. Revelation 7, verse 15. References to service or work in the scriptures imply that we will have responsibilities in heaven. That we will have duties in heaven, effort and creativity to do work well. 
and work will last and accomplishments will last unhindered by decay and fatigue and enhanced by unlimited resources. But it'll also be work that is restful, not that makes us tired. Heaven's labor will be refreshing and productive and unthwarted without futility and frustration. Perhaps it will be like Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin brought the curse on the ground with its thorns. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with our brothers and sisters, perfect work, perfect worship, perfect eating. It's interesting that with these resurrected bodies, the Scripture indicates that we'll be able to recognize each other. We'll be able to recognize each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But if we also think that the apostles recognize that the Mount of Transfiguration, those men on that mountain, we'll be able to recognize believers from ages gone by. There'll be a sweet fellowship. Not a fellowship that's tainted by sin and jealousy, striving to be better and on top of one another, but sweet, sinless fellowship with saints of old. We will eat, but we will not hunger or thirst, and so it's pure enjoyment, brothers and sisters. Pure enjoyment. Revelation seven sixteen. I shouldn't have put that in my notes, but I couldn't help it. Fourthly, and most importantly, the Bible reveals to us that heaven is a much better place because of the unaltered fellowship with God. The best thing about heaven, the greatest reason that it is unending joy and we find pleasure forevermore, heaven's central drawing card is the presence of the Godhead, is that we will be with him and that fellowship will be unaltered. Altered. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. The anticipation of being with Christ. We will be face to face with the Lamb of God, who loved us and sacrificed himself so that we could enjoy his presence in heaven for eternity. Our faith will be turned to sight and what we experienced partially. And we do experience that fellowship with him now and praise the Lord for that. But it is partial. It is not complete, but in heaven it will be unaltered. The Bible tells us that heaven is the dwelling place of God. His his throne is there. His angels are there. The Lord Christ is in heaven Philippians 3.20 says clearly, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Look at the passage before us in Revelation 21. In verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Drop down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. 
And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord is illuminating it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jump down to Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The Apostle Paul understood the gravity and greatness of heaven because he understood that it was where he would be with God. Philippians chapter 1, 23, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. The, 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 the element of his struggle was, I can be useful here. I can serve the church here. I can teach people about Christ here. I can open up God's word here. And I'm hard-pressed. I want to stay. But to be with Christ is greater by far. Heaven is unaltered fellowship with our Creator, our Savior, the lover of our souls. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And yes, it's beautiful. And yes, there is no sin, and yes, there is no curse, but what a day of rejoicing it will be because we will be with God. Now, before I move on to our response to the reality of heaven, I think it's important to mention quickly that the place that believers go after they die is not the same state today as it will be that John is describing in Revelation 21 and 22. Just as the unbeliever who dies goes into an intermediate state and awaits that lake of fire, the believer who dies now immediately enters into heaven, the realm of God, the presence of God, but it hasn't gotten to the point of Revelation 21 and 22. Heaven is not as it one day will be. The resurrection of believers, the receiving of our glorified bodies, has not yet occurred and will not until just prior to the new heavens and earth. You see, Jesus is still preparing that place. And the new earth, this new heavens and the new earth, though the present heaven will we enter at death, is a wonderful place, a marvelous place, a place that is much better, as Paul describes it, because it involves a conscious, peaceful existence with Jesus. It, it, it involves a personal removal of sin and sadness and sickness and death. It is a place of rest and worship. And it is far better than life on earth. It is just not quite yet what it will be in its most glorified form. So even now, for those of us that have lost a believing loved one, they are experiencing paradise. That is how it's described. But they even have something more to look forward to. When they are, uh, they are reunited with their resurrected body. And this city comes from heaven down to earth. So what is our response to this reality? What are we to do with this truth, this doctrine that is clearly communicated in God's word? How does it apply to us in this room? 
Obviously, as we said last week, it is not simply shared so that we have more head knowledge. It is not shared to bring understanding alone. It is to bring understanding, but it is to move us to action. So the remainder of our time, I'd like us to see four responses or applications to this reality. Number one, the response to the reality of heaven is that we should seek to populate that city. As Stephen was being martyred, he was given a brief look into heaven. He was was able to see through the clouds. He was able to see heaven and see his Savior. And even as he was being stoned by the crowd, his response to the vision of heaven was to pray for his executors. As he saw the glories of heaven, as he recognized that he had been forgiven and was allowed to enter into this place, his response was, Lord, please forgive them. As he anticipated his spirit being received by Jesus, and as he witnessed the glory of paradise, he wanted his fellow Jews to find the forgiveness that he received and eventually to be welcomed into God's presence in heaven. As we mentioned last week, as we contemplate these two realities, as we meditate on the horror of heaven and the glories of heaven, or the the horrors of hell and the glories of heaven, both should motivate us to evangelize. It should prompt us to share the love of Christ to all men and attempt to save them for the wrath to come. And heaven in its wonderful splendors should cause us to point people to that narrow gate to the one who purifies us and cleanses us and allows us to enter into that place. What greater mission could we have than to usher a loved one, a friend, a coworker, or neighbor to this most amazing rest? No impact could be greater. No time better spent. Moms and dads, as you ponder heaven and its glories... What could be greater for your children than that? Nothing should have a higher priority for us than the eternal destination of our children's souls. But do we have goals? Do we have aspirations for our children that we have placed higher? Have we placed their academics? Have we placed their sports? Have we placed their activities and hobbies above their destination of heaven? And do we spend far more time talking about those things and taking them all over than we do taking them to church where Christ is exalted and the gospel is preached? There's no greater goal for your children, no greater goal for our neighbor who Jesus told us to love than them becoming a citizen of that city. Ponder the greatness of that place And it will motivate you to preach the gospel. Second response to the reality of heaven is should we should grieve differently. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 and 14. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that we sorrow not even as others have which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, then also which sleep in Jesus will bring with him. 
If you have lost a loved one to death, you know that it is a horribly painful experience. And Jesus felt your pain. He experienced your pain of losing someone close to his heart. If you look at the book of John, in John 11, we see that his friend and beloved uh, brother, Lazarus, died and he wept. He was deeply moved and he wept at the lost of his friend. And the story, however, does not end in those tears. Jesus knew he possessed the power needed to raise Jesus from, or Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus overcame death through his resurrection. And it is comforting to know that death is not the end for those who believe. Those who know Jesus as their Savior will have eternal life. And for us, as we meditate on this heaven, it allows us to grieve the loss of our believing spouse or child or parent or friend. Because God has prepared a new home for them. That there is an experience that they are a part of now that is much greater than where they would be if they were with us. For there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more sadness, no more battle with sin. We rejoice in the fact that they are with Christ, enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord. Heaven comforts us in our pain. If you've lost a loved one, one of the greatest things you can do is Spend time meditating on where they are. Meditating on what they experience. Meditating on where they got a head start. Because you'll be there soon. Heaven comforts us in our pain and leads us to view death through a very different lens. And therefore we grieve with hope. Because we view death not as the end, but the gateway to this life abundant to this life eternal, this life without sin, this life without the curse, and this life with perfect fellowship with God. Thirdly, our response to the truth of heaven is that we should live as heavenly citizens here on earth. Jesus taught us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we have seen, Heaven is a place of perfection. Heaven is a place of holiness. Heaven is a place of worship. And our lives now are simply a dress rehearsal of what it will be like for eternity. Since heaven is a place of perfect fellowship with God, we should seek His face here. We should pursue Him here. We should go to His Word and find Him here. We should pray to him. Since heaven is the gathering of all believers throughout time, believers of every tribe and every tongue, we should seek to love and fellowship with people who look differently than us and come from different ethnic cultures. We we should seek out the people we'll be ministering with and serving with and worshiping with in heaven. Since heaven is a place where sin will not dwell, we must live our lives here 
confessing sin, repenting of sin, and seeking righteousness, that will be ours fully and perfectly in heaven. And since heaven is a place of continual worship, we should seek to worship in in word, through song, and with our very life. Paul reminded the Philippians that their citizenship was in heaven. And while they lived here, they were to still... They were to understand that the, that the authority of heaven, the king of heaven, was their king now. That they were to live according to heaven's laws, even while they were in Philippi. That they were to represent the king in that country as ambassadors of their future home in their present home. Understanding the holiness of heaven and how we will live there It provides the clarity and responsibility in how we are to live here. Again, we get so blinded by the sin of our culture that we forget what holiness looks like. And as we meditate on the holiness of heaven, it reminds us what holiness looks like. Finally, heaven's truth allows us to persevere in hope. Persevere in hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, Paul wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul did not lose heart in the face of much opposition in the face of ministry that was difficult, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you see all that he went through in his ministry, he did not lose heart. He did not stop. He persevered through it because he evaluated things as if on a great scale. On the one side, he set all of his present troubles. And on the other side, the glories of heaven. He first puts on one side of the scales all the brutal treatment that he endured and the extreme trouble of ministry, the battle with sin to remain faithful. But on the other side of those scales, it, was, it caused Paul to view his afflictions and trials as light and momentary. He was able to view his affliction through the lens of the coming glory that the coming glory would be so much greater than the greatness of the difficulty he was experiencing now. He viewed his trouble and his pain and his hurt through the lens of eternity. And as we view what heaven will be like, it allows us to endure the struggle against the flesh, against the devil, against the world around us, because we know what God has promised for us in the end. If we place our minds on the reward of heaven, it will allow us and help us in the day in and day out struggles that we face today. If we become anxious or depressed in trials and lose hope, it's probably because we've forgotten the absolute certain outcome, the future glory that we will experience with Christ. Yes, there is present suffering because we live in a fallen world, but God has promised future glory. In these verses in Revelation 21, 
John attempts to describe what is indescribable. And in verse 4 in particular, there is this striking statement. For those of us that are striving to persevere, that have burdened hearts, when Jesus returns, there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For we will be with Christ. As you turn to chapter 22, the last book of the Bible, we see clearly that there are two more responses to this amazing vision of heaven. The first is found in verse 17, and that is for those of us in this room who have not come to faith in Christ. Revelation 22, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride said, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. For those of you that are damned to the reality of hell. Jesus here is saying, come. I will bring forgiveness. I will cleanse you from your sin. All you have to do is come in faith. So the first response in verse 17 for the unbeliever is to come to Christ for salvation. The second is found in verse 20, and that is for the believer. Our greatest desire for this conclusion to come about We should pray, come Lord Jesus. That should be the prayer of our heart. Come Lord Jesus. There should be a longing for heaven and for this perfect fellowship with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for, Lord, the uh, truth of Scripture about our final destination. And Lord, I pray that the reality of hell would motivate those in this room to place their faith fully on the work of Christ, to flee the wrath that is to come, to rest in the substitutional work of Christ, of dying on the cross and taking all of your wrath on him. Lord, I pray that they would repent and that you would save them. Father, For those in this room that are believing, may our focus and minds and heart be on this great and amazing destination. May it motivate us to action. May it comfort us in hardship. And may it be a part of our prayer, Lord, come quickly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.